0: All right, well, um, good morning, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, we have a weighty text and a lot to get through, so we are going to dive right into the passage. If you have your Bibles, please turn to First Timothy chapter two. We'll be reading from verses eight to 15. So First Timothy, chapter two, verses eight to 15. Uh, we're continuing in our series through Paul's letter to Timothy which is also kind of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, because that's where uh, Timothy is doing ministry. May God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with... Um, I thought about skipping this passage <laughs> when we were doing this series. I, I genuinely prayed over it. I was like, Lord, can we just pass over verses 8 to 15? Um, it is one of the most difficult, controversial, and misunderstood passages in all of Scripture. In light of today's progressive, egalitarian society, to preach this text as it plainly comes to us in the scriptures, it could be considered toxic, right? It could be considered chauvinistic or misogynistic. It could be considered oppressive. And so I spent a lot of time reading books and commentaries and articles from both conservative and more liberal sources. I I read both men and women just reacting to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, one progressive author even titled uh, this section, he had, she had an article titled, Diffusing the First Timothy Two Bomb, right? Diffusing the bomb. Well, here we go, bombs away, bombs away. Now, before we get into the text, I, wanna, I want you to know that not only have I been reading a lot and preparing a lot for this message, I've been uh, really praying through this passage. I've been praying for you. I've been praying for us that um, as we receive this passage and as we work through it, that that it would really be edifying, that it wouldn't be divisive, right? Uh, that it wouldn't upset you and give you a reason to leave the church or you know, distrust the Bible or the gospel. Uh, but yeah, I've, I really focus on two things. First is this, uh, that we would have open hearts to take God at his word. Okay? It's so important that if you are a Christian, you believe that the Bible is not just a book of wisdom. You believe that it is the word of God and it is our duty, our calling to take the Bible at its word. And and the more time you spend studying the scriptures, it's not not so much that you get a hold of the Bible and you get a grasp of the word, rather it's that that the word of God gets a hold on you. That the Bible gets a grasp upon you and it changes the way you think, the way that you see the world, the way that you see yourself, the way that you love and live. And so I've been praying that we would be a church that takes God at his word that we would be a church that's willing to submit to Scripture. All nations, I never want us to be a church that apologizes for the Bible. This is one of those passages where you might be tempted to apologize for it, right? Where you might be tempted to skip over it and not talk about it, not study it. Act as if it doesn't really exist. I never want to be a pastor that's afraid to proclaim the whole counsel of God. I never want to shrink from teaching difficult and even controversial passages. And so I've been praying that when we do come to the Bible and experiencing God in his word confronting us, God confronting and challenging our worldview, our preferences, okay? Because there is friction here, is there not? There's tension here. My prayer is that God would win. When we feel the clash between our preferences and our worldview, our upbringing, and our desires, I pray that God and his word would win. Win in your minds, win in your hearts, win in your lives. The second thing I've been praying for is that we would find this passage liberating. Okay? Not oppressive. This is the sweet, life-giving, beautiful, majestic word of God. I know that prohibitions and restrictions can feel oppressive. All these do-nots. Women can't speak. Women can't teach or have authority over men. But I want to tell you that this passage in Paul's writing to Timothy and the Ephesian church is not designed to subjugate women. The Bible is not chauvinistic. The gospel of Jesus truly does set us free. Okay? The gospel affords us freedom. But freedom in the kingdom of God is not license to do whatever you please, and whatever you want. Rather, the freedom that comes from the gospel is the freedom to live according to God's design purpose, to live the life that God created you to live as husband and wife, man and woman, child of God. And so my prayer is that we would use and see our passage today to teach us more about ourselves and for God to restore in us his purpose for our lives as men and women, husbands and wives in the church and in our households. So that's what I've been praying for. May God's will be done. May God's will be done. The title of today's message is this, Orderly Worship. Okay, I kept it general, like in vague, so it's not clickbait on the website, right? But orderly worship, and that's what Paul's talking about here, orderly worship, and in usual fashion, I've got three points today. First, we're gonna look at purity in worship, okay? Second, modesty in worship. Third, uh, submission in worship. So purity in worship, Modesty in worship, and then submission in worship. Now, um, uh, throughout these three kind of points and throughout our passage, I have a kind of like interpretation formula. It's called hermeneutics. That's like our system for uh, studying and unpacking the Bible. And, and I want to just share that with you. Now, in verses 5 to 18, uh, no, 8 to 15. Sorry, I went a little dyslexic right there. Uh, 8 to 15, uh, it is a single unit of thought and so even though I'm breaking it up into three, uh, three ideas, it's actually one unit of thought. And it's Paul talking about worship. He's instructing Timothy and the church at Ephesus on how to worship God as the body of Christ in diversity. Right, And knowing that the church is composed of both men and women, here he has specific instructions for what men are to do and what women are to do. How they're to conduct themselves and relate to one another in worship. Now, there are three ways to interpret this passage, okay? If you read a bunch of different commentaries, if you hear pastors and preachers talking about uh, this passage, there's generally three camps people fall into. The first is this. I'm going to call them the hyper-literalists, okay? There's a hyper-literal interpretation, and just as the label indicates, some people try to take every instruction, every word, every idea, every phrase, and put it into direct practice into worship. You can see that. It says, the Bible says this, right? Verse 8 says this. Verse 9 says this. We have to do it. That, that's what it means to obey the Word of God. But if you take this message method, it actually leads us into a whole lot of trouble. Not only is purity, modesty, and submission necessary for worship, but what else is necessary? Brothers, lift your hands in prayer, right? I looked around. During confession of sin, not a single person lifted their hands, <laughs> Right, that means you need to confess for your sins. Right, Bible said, lift your hands in prayer. Right, what's the next thing that we see? Women in modesty, but then Paul specifically says gold, pearls, braided hair. Right, I see some braided hair here. Repent. Right, (laughs) all the married women with your engagement rings, diamond rings. Right, You're, you're in trouble. Repent. Take those off. Leave those at home. Don't bring them into worship. Right? There's all these like, practical implications that if you follow this passage, literally, we get in trouble. Women must be silent, and you can't even laugh at my awesome jokes. Right? <laughs> and then the kicker at the very end, women, if you want to be saved, you've got to have kids. Right? Right? That women are saved through childbearing. Troublesome, isn't it? And this, so the problem with this method is that it fails to distinguish between principle And application, okay? Principle and some practice, right? It fails to understand that in the Bible there are both timeless truths that God wants all of his people to always obey, and then in other moments and verses in scriptures, there are um, particular contexts. Where for the first century, two thousand years ago, Ephesian church, that this specifically applied to them, as Paul is writing a letter to them and instructing them, we have to rightly be able to divide the word. Okay, are there principles or are there practical applications? Okay, if we treat them both as the same, we get into a whole lot of trouble. Take your rings off, unbraid your hair, lift your hands. Right. The second way to interpret this passage was I'm going to actually was what I'll call the hyper contextual method, okay? So if one is super literal, the other is super contextual. And this method looks at all of the cultural influences of the first century church. And they say, yeah, 2,000 years ago, this is what men thought about women. 2,000 years ago, this is what the women in the church were doing. 2,000 years ago, this is what, you know, gold and pearls and all of these things represented. And so then they then argue that those instructions, that this entire chapter only applies to that small group of people in Ephesus, that Timothy was pastoring, right? Hyper-contextual, right? So the hand-lifting, the modesty, the silence, the childbearing, just for them 2,000 years ago. The problem is this, the people who adopt this view end up arguing away everything in the passage. This, This letter wasn't just for the Ephesians, it was for us, okay? This isn't just God's word for a particular people, it's God's word for all of his people. And so if you take this kind of more progressive approach, when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach and have authority over a man, the progressives will then say, you know what? For us, in 2017, we do permit a woman to teach and have authority over a man. And the question is, how did you get there? Paul says, I don't. How do you then justify authority and teaching in the church with men over women? That's not contextualizing. That's contradicting, okay? There are things that we want to contextualize in Scripture, right? What's equivalent to a gold ring back then for us today, right? That's contextualization. Contradiction is, I do not permit, but we will permit, okay? There's a huge difference, and we never want to contradict the Word of God. The third way is presented by a wonderful scholar named John Stott, and he tells us there are both unchanging principles and contextual applications in this passage. It's a balanced view. We identify both, and that's what we wanna do today. This is a helpful guide for how we are to interpret the Bible. We wanna look for the timeless truths of scripture and then identify the appropriate application of those truths for our lives, for our church, for our situations today. So verse eight, it's a great starting point. For us to do this. This is kind of like the easy one of the day. Um, Paul writes in verse 8, it's going to go up on the screen as a great reminder. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now recall in our first sermon in the series, we're looking at chapter 1, that the church Timothy was pastoring is the church of Ephesus and they're in a whole lot of trouble. Ephesus has had false teachers come into the church, infiltrate them, and mislead many people. They've even had to excommunicate two leaders named Humanaeus and Alexander, right? And they were like their church elders. That's equivalent to like Pastor DC getting excommunicated, right? And if one of our deacons ended up being an elder, right, just we kick him out and say, you're a false teacher, right? That kind of conflict. So accusations are flying, Be like, I saw you hanging out with Humanaeus. You were in a small group. Are you a heretic too, right? Imagine that, right? Super divided in the church. Everyone is on edge. The church needs reconciliation. That's their context. That's their situation. Knowing this, Paul says, I want the men. I want the leaders in the church to pray and lift holy hands without anger, without quarreling. What's the principle? You guys can figure this one out. Very easy, right? What's the cultural application? The principle is this. The men are to worship God, to gather in the church and to pray with holiness and purity. That we are to gather with a spirit of humility, that we are to practice reconciliation and that reconciliation precedes worship. That you can't come into the church and be super angry and be in great conflict and quarreling with other brothers in the church and then say, I'm here to worship God. I'm here to celebrate the gospel. I'm here to give God the glory. When like two seats over, you're like, I hate that guy's guts. Right? Paul says that doesn't work. Reconciliation must precede worship. That if you're angry and you're in conflict with another member in the church, you need to go to that brother. And you didn't make it right. You need to confess your sins before you go to God. Go to the brother before you go to God. One pastor wrote that peace with God is artificial If there's no peace with others. Okay. Peace with God is artificial. Okay. If we don't have peace amongst this body, amongst this community. Jesus Himself taught this principle, and I always say this about this passage: it is the one teaching of Jesus I have never seen obeyed. Okay? Real curious now. You're like, which one is this? I've never seen a single person obey it. Okay. And this is what he says in Matthew 20, or 5:23 to 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift, right? Have you ever seen it obeyed? Where somebody's like here in worship, you know, confession of sin, they're like, oh my God. And then they just leave. (laughs) I got, you know, hospitality's like, where are you going? But I have to be reconciled before. I've never seen it. But this is Jesus' point, reconciliation with others precedes even our worship before God. We can't claim to enjoy peace with God when we have so much conflict within the body. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Friends, isn't worship difficult? Isn't prayer impossible when our hearts are filled with conflict and anger? It's so hard to pray when you're angry, isn't it? It's so hard to pray. Are you experiencing this today? Maybe this is you. Have you tasted the bitterness of this in the past? Husbands, you guys know how impossible it is to really worship and really enjoy the gospel when right next to you is your spouse and you just had like World War III in the car (laughs) on the way over. When you had great, just a terrible fight the night before. You know, you're like, everything is blocked, right? You're like, just nothing works. Worship doesn't work. Prayer doesn't work when you've gone nuclear with your spouse on the way to church. I know a lot of uh, shrewd pastors' wives, um, very wise, very shrewd, uh, they know and they decided like, not to argue with their husbands on Sunday night before they preach because they don't want to wreck their husbands. Right? They know that if they go and, and, and they go at it and they unload and they really argue with their husbands before they have to preach the next day, the husbands are done. They're going to bomb the message. So they wait until Sunday night and then let them have it. Right, Uh, my wife does this one as well. She's not here right now, but I appreciate it. I appreciate. So, like, ignorance is bliss. I don't know. I didn't know. Like, uh, anyways. Um, So, if the principle is for men to pray and worship with holiness and purity, that we are to be men not of conflict but of peace and reconciliation, what's the contextual application? The answer is the lifting of the hands. Okay, that's a secondary issue. That's posture. And there's flexibility there. The Bible does have instances where we are called to lift up our hands to the Lord in worship, right? Psalm 24 talks about this. But the Bible also has moments of, of us sitting in the presence of God. David did this often. Or, the, or, or of praying in prostrate, where you fall head first, kneeling before the Lord, right? There are different postures that God allows us to have as we worship Him and as we pray. And so Paul isn't saying there's only one way, and it's hands up right? It's not, that's not what Paul is saying. It would be absurd if that's what Paul was commanding us to do. People would think we're really cultish here at All Nations, right? Let us pray, and everyone goes, <laughs> what kind of church are you? We're, hey, we're a, we're a First Timothy 2 church, right? <laughs> elsewhere, elsewhere, Paul tells us to what? Greet each other with a holy kiss. You guys don't want to see that in action, Hospitality team does not want to add that to their like ministry job description. Give out a bulletin and give out a kiss, right? But Paul said it, he commands it. Why do we not obey it? Because it's a secondary issue and there's a contextual application, right? In Spain, one kiss, two kisses, boom, boom, like left and right, no problem, right? Uh, But we're not that kind of church. And so we see that there's principle and flexibility. Verse 8, really, really helpful. Okay. Let's continue to our second point today, which is modesty in worship. This one still is, is okay for us. Verses 9 to 15, then, after Paul addresses the men in verse 8, 9 to 15 specifically addresses the women in the church. But I, want, I also want the men to listen carefully because there's so much for us to learn, so much for us to profit from uh, in these verses. In verses 9 to 10, let's look at those again. Paul commands, likewise, Also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So likewise, women, reconciliation is important for you guys as well, okay? Uh, Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Once again, what's the principle here? I think you guys are like getting the hang of it, okay? It's for women to dress in modesty. It's for women to adorn themselves not with just earthly beauty, but with godly beauty. And that's good works. That's self-control. That's modesty. The context for the Ephesian church was to abstain for, uh, from braided hair, gold, and costly attire. It's I'm really glad. My wife is really glad. All the married women are glad that those things are flexible, right? Um, and so we see, once again, the principle, and then we see the secondary contextual application. Now, what's the big deal with braided hair? Gold, pearls, costly attire. I keep going to my gold, right? I I keep like, eh. Anyways, uh, but guys can wear it. Didn't say no. Um, Now, why would Paul bring these things up, okay? Is it because there's something inherently bad with pearls and braiding your hair? The answer is no. There's nothing inherently wrong with gold, right? Uh, Rather, here's the reason why Paul speaks out against it. Because in the Roman Empire, the fashion trends for women were being set by the Empress of Rome, okay? And they are also being set by the temple prostitutes, right? These women were dressing in, in a manner to accentuate their physical beauty, to highlight their wealth, their status, their power, their sexuality. And when men were swooning over such women when men were lusting after such women and pursuing these kinds of women, what does the rest of the women in the Roman Empire do? They want to dress like them. They want to be beautiful. They want to be desirable, right? And so they follow the trends. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sisters, how is beauty defined in our culture today? How is beauty defined for you as you're getting ready in the morning to come to church or go to work, go to school, or go out to a special event? How are you defining beauty? How are you making your selections? The Ephesians had the royal empress and the temple prostitutes tell them what beauty was. Tell them how they should wear their makeup and how they should wear their hair and adorn themselves. Today we have our celebrities and runway models. What fashion trends are you tempted to follow today? What's what's hot this season? Is your wardrobe full of Tight clothes, short skirts, low necklines, because that's what's popular, right? Um, As I was even prepping for this message, I was like, oh, I was reminded, I don't know why, I've never even opened it, I've only seen the cover, but there's a popular women's magazine called Allure, Allure, right? And what is it doing? It's telling women, if you read this magazine, we're going to tell you all the secrets on how to allure people in. You can get the man of your dreams, Right, You can get the job of your dreams. You can get all that you want. We're gonna teach you how to adorn yourself so you can allure people. Women, sisters, the word of God is calling you today to consider your purity, to dress in modesty and adorn yourselves with true beauty, which is found in godliness and self-control. This is true beauty. This is what God says. Once again, there's conflict because too many of you don't believe it. You say, I need to look like that person on the magazine. I need to look like those popular celebrities. I need to look like like my coworkers, my friends. These are the images I am pursuing. God says, there's something more beautiful, something more lasting, something deeper that I want you to adorn yourself with. Now, this doesn't mean you must dress plainly. We're not going like Amish and you got to do like the skirts down to the ankles and no makeup or anything like that. We're not telling you that a godly woman is a frumpy woman right? Uh, that's not what the passage is saying, but I believe there are many ways, plenty of ways for you to dress both modestly and fashionably, all right? Uh, I, I do believe it, but I don't want to be the fashion police, so I'm going to end it there, all Right, <laughs> You guys fig- figure it out, figure it out, but, you know, I hope we can figure, you guys can figure out a way to dress modestly and fashionably, and um, God bless. Godspeed. <laughs> that's the principle. That's the principle. Men, I want you to do your part as well. How do you identify beauty in a woman? One of the main reasons why these women were pursuing the empresses, dressing like the temple prostitutes, because that's what the men were interested in. That's what the men were desiring. That's what their appetite was for. And these women wanted to be married. They wanted men to show interest in them. They wanted men's affirmation. They wanted their men to say, you are beautiful, How do you measure beauty, brothers? Do you see beauty in godliness? Do you see beauty in self-control? Do you see beauty in good works? How do you want your daughters and wives to dress? The more, brothers, we celebrate beauty as godliness and purity, the more we are reinforcing and we are abiding in the word of God. We are creating a culture of biblical beauty for our sisters, we're creating a safe place for our sisters to dress in modesty and beauty and affirm them and celebrate them, right? And so brothers, I just want to challenge you to redefine for yourself what a beautiful woman looks like, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's the challenge for us. Let's, that leads us to our final point, uh, which is submission in worship. So uh, this is where the sermon gets sticky, right? Praying with pure hearts, no problem. Okay? Dressing in modesty, okay. Right? Glad Pastor Mike didn't go fashion police on us. Um, But now telling women to submit, be silent, not have authority in the church. Nuclear. Right? Bombs away. Let's look at our final verses one last time together. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So um, let me diffuse the bomb as best I can. And I'm gonna identify first the principle and then the contextual application. The principle for women in the church is clear. Women are to practice biblical submission to male headship in the church and in the home. Okay, Uh, There's no skirting around that. The submission word isn't the, oh, we get to like flex it. Uh, that's, that's the principle. That Christian women in the church are to practice submission to male headship in the home and in the church. This means that women are not to assume teaching authority. That women are not to become ruling elders in the church. Um, this is the principle. But the concept of women being quiet... In the, church, the women being silent in the church, that's actually the area where we will flex and we will see that there's a cultural application uh, that differs from us in 2017 versus them uh, back 2,000 years ago. And so it's in the quietness, in the not permitting women to speak, uh, that's where, uh, yeah, there's a contextual application. Now, in the beginning of my message, I said I wanted our understanding of this text to be liberating and not oppressive. And this is where it starts feeling oppressive. Doesn't it? It really does. And so I just want to share three ways in which biblical submission is a powerful, life giving, and a beautiful truth for us to live in, okay? I want it to be empowering, women. I'm not here to be like, oh, be quiet and just follow. That's not the word of God for us today. Why is this beautiful? Why is submission ch- uh, something we should pursue and live in? First is this it reflects creation. Submission reflects creation. In Genesis 1.27, before the fall, God says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is not just Adam who was created in the image of God, but both Adam and Eve. Before Eve was even formed, that happens later, right? Before Eve was even formed from Adam's rib, God said, male and female, I created them in my image. Both are equal as image bearers of God, equal in our need for one another. Okay? Adam was lonely and God looked at him and he says, this is not good. I'm going to create a suitable helper for him. Both male and female need each other. Right? Adam looked at Eve. at Eve. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We need to see each other in the household and in the church as true equals, as image bearers of God. But this equality is not without distinction, okay? Not without distinction. Adam was given headship over Eve, and he was created to have authority over her, right? To protect her, right? To speak God's truth, to to offer and lead in God's way over her and the household. This truth is affirmed again in the New Testament post-fall. So there's certain scholars who are gonna argue, well, you know, after the fall, everything changed. You know what? Headship, biblical submission this order for Adam and Eve, male and female, husband and wife, it's not just Genesis 1, it's Ephesians 5, right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, Christian women, okay, as you submit to Jesus, that kind of submission, right? That kind of love and devotion is to be expressed toward your husband as well, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Then he goes a couple more verses later, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's this mutual devotion, an actual mutual submission because if if a husband is going to love his wife as Christ loved the church, well, what did Jesus do for the church? He died for her. He gave his life up for her. He went to the cross for her. If that's not surrender, I don't know what is. So husbands, it's not this dictatorship over your household. No, you die for your family. You die for your wife. You surrender for her life, for her joy, for her good. What is the implication of created order, right? Of man and woman, Adam and Eve, the implication is this. The implication is headship is not based on merit, okay? It is not based on merit. what we're saying is men are not teaching in the church because we're better. Friends, I had women uh, classmates, female classmates in seminary. I guarantee you every single one graduated with a higher GPA than me, right? I'm at graduation. They're like, summa cum laude, you know, honorable mention. Like I'm just like, Michael Lee graduated. No honors, no nothing, right? It has nothing to do right? Nothing to do with particular giftedness or merit. We're not saying, oh, men are better leaders than women. That's why women aren't called to lead the church. No. Why is it structured this way? Why has God designed the church this way? It's to reflect his created order. It's to reflect his relationship of his son, Jesus Christ, and his bride, the church, right? There is a divine divine design behind that. And so, there's uh, that headship is not only just for husbands over wives, but it's also leadership over the church. Right? This is not merit based. It's not because men think we're better or we're stronger or or more gifted. In fact, we believe that women actually receive all of the gifts from God. All of the gifts. From the Holy Spirit, that there are no like male gifts and female gifts. No, the gifts of hospitality, teaching, faith, encouragement—all of these things are dispensed by God and it's the Holy Spirit to all of the believers according to God's sovereign will. So I want to say that, like women, you are equally gifted, right, in this church as any brother, as any man, right. And so, so I just, yeah, that's very, very important to affirm. Okay. The second thing that uh, shows us the beauty of biblical submission and why it's so important is it reflects the Trinity. So first, it reflects creation. Second, it reflects the Trinity. Biblical submission doesn't mean superiority. It doesn't mean hierarchy. The doctrine of the Trinity shows us equality and distinctiveness, okay? The Trinity tells us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are all God, right? They all enjoy the fullness of God. They are equal in power, equal in glory, equal in majesty. And yet amidst their equality, there is submission. There is distinction of their roles. What did Jesus do? Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. Even when he's praying in Gethsemane, he says, Father, would you take this cup from me? But at the end, he says, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Jesus submitted to the will of the Father as he came to earth and he went to the cross. And the Holy Spirit is commissioned by the Son. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to his disciples, to his church, to be our helper, to be our comforter, to manifest the presence of God. Right? This is the Trinitarian order. We see equality in the Godhead and at the same time, Right? distinctiveness in what they are called to do. Okay? So the inferior, uh, implication is this. Submission doesn't mean inferiority. Submission doesn't mean weakness. Okay? The Holy Spirit is not weaker or th- the third class person in the Trinity. No. The Holy Spirit has all of the power of the Godhead. And yet, the Holy Spirit is commissioned. right? Commissioned by the Son. The third point is this. Okay? Uh, distortion of headship reflects the fall. Why is biblical submission important? Because... When we don't apply biblical submission and headship, we get the fall. Okay, we get the fall. Many liberal theologians argue the headship, it came after the fall. It's a result of sin, right? The reason why uh, the church is like, oh, you know, only men are going to be elders and, and teaching authorities in the church, it's actually because of the fall. It's actually because of sin, right? Um, that argument doesn't hold water. They argue that female submission is a product of sin and doesn't reflect the kingdom of God. However, in reality, the exact opposite is true. Okay. The meaning of verses 13 and 14, this is the meaning of verses 13 and 14, where Paul writes, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Uh, my wife doesn't like this verse. I asked her, I asked her, hey, like read this verse and tell me what you think? And her initial reaction was like, I don't like verses 13 and 14 because I feel like we're getting blamed for everything. We are being blamed for the fall. Well, the the reality is this, right? Paul writes this not to shift blame from Adam to Eve, but to provide a picture where male headship was not practiced. What was Adam supposed to do? He was supposed to protect her, he was to execute authority right? A sacrificial, life-giving authority over his wife. But what happened in the fall? Rather than leading and protecting Eve, Adam abdicated his headship to Eve in the fall. The serpent deceived Eve, and she made her own decision. She looked at the, that fruit, and it was pleasing to the eye, and she said, oh, this will give me wisdom, and I'm going to be like God. I'm going to eat it. And then Adam was next to her, and Eve said, hey, you take it. You eat it too. And rather than Adam protecting her and leading her, he said, okay, I'll take it. Whatever you want, honey. He followed. He didn't execute and demonstrate headship. Right? He was led and misled by his wife. She gave, uh, yeah, he received that. Adam let Eve lead the family and the results were catastrophic. Once again, it's not to blame her. Rather, it's a picture of Adam's failure to lead. It's a picture of what happens when we actually don't practice this model and structure of family and headship in the church. You see, this is how authority was supposed to flow in God's creation. God has authority, right? He gave it to Adam, he gave it to Eve, and they rule over creation. That's how the authority was supposed to flow. You know what happened in the fall? The serpent, a created being, deceived the wife. The wife misled her husband And all were in enmity with the father. You see how disorienting, right, that was. The good news of the gospel is that the gospel doesn't dissolve headship. It doesn't say, oh, men and women, they're all the same and in the family and the church and whatever it might be. No, no, no. The gospel restores authority. And as Jesus is authority over the church, that's to restore a husband's authority over his wife the male leaders in the church over their members, right? That's the restoring work of the gospel. Uh, We are tight on time, but I know the last verse is like super, like, you know, intriguing and uh, no one understands it. Um, Verse fifth, uh, verse, where's that verse? Okay, it says, uh, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. So weird, right? What are you saying, Paul? Are you saying that women are saved through childbearing as long as you're like a godly mom, right? Uh, I just learned what a push gift is, right? Eternal life, like the best push gift ever. Um, But that's actually not the point. (laughs) Thank you. I was like, wait, is that not funny? Okay, was that inappropriate? If it was inappropriate, I'm sorry. Um, That is not, uh, that's not what uh, Paul is teaching, uh, it's, there's actually something really beautiful about what Paul's referring to. Um, in Genesis 3:15. after the fall, God kind of issued both a curse and a promise to all of creation. And this is what he says to Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what God tells a serpent, okay? This is what I'm going to do. There's going to be enmity between the line, the children of Satan, and the children of Adam. And one day, the Messiah is going to come. And you're going to strike him. You're going to send him to the cross. But Jesus will be victorious. Jesus will be victorious, because on the third day, he's going to rise again. That was the first gospel promise that God gave the world, a fallen world in Genesis 3.15. What had to happen? Eve had to have children. And as women continued to bear children from generation to generation, as there continued to be godliness and faith and devotion to the Lord, a line would come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a line would come through King David all the way till one day Mary would be with child and she would give birth to the Messiah. Yes, we are saved through childbearing, through the immaculate conception of Mary. What an amazing thing that we can say, oh, Eve, through the deception of a woman came the fall of creation, through the conception, right? Through the conception. In a woman came the savior of the world. That is redemption. There is the gospel there. I don't have time to finish our final exhortations, but if you are a woman at our church, I hope that we might be a place where you can learn, where you can be discipled, where you can grow in faith, where you can exercise your gifts. I want to make every opportunity possible to see you bear fruit to you live a life that glorifies God, that, that disciples other women, that encourages and edifies the church. And brothers, may this be part of our mission and calling as well. Not just to go on great men's weekenders, but to really cultivate a ministry where our women, our wives, our sisters can flourish in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a healthy and a whole church. Help us to be a biblical church that doesn't manipulate your word according to our own preferences. Lord, rather, may we be surrendered to your word. May we be mastered by your word. Father, we thank you again for this picture of grace, this picture of family, this picture of the church that you have painted for us. Lord, I pray for us here at All Nations. May that be more and more a reality. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.